Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. It is Friday, November 11th. Uh, this is Alex, and I'm joined today by Marianne Azevedo, one of my oldest friends. Marianne, how are you? Doing great, Alex. How are you? Uh, it's shorts and t-shirt weather once again here in <laughs> mid-November on the East Coast. So I'm excited and also terrified for the planet. Uh, but the good news is I am not alone on the East Coast enjoying the weather today. We have along with us, Marianne, we have Becca Skutak from the TC Plus team. Becca, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Natasha's off today, and so Becca has very kindly stepped in to fill the void. And it's great to have all three of us because there has been so much going on. This this week has felt like a year, I think. I'm exhausted. I'm curious just up top, how are you guys holding up? Yeah, same. Like very, very long week, just taking in so much. Yeah, how we're holding up? Not well. Not well. I, I think having an election of, of great import in the nation at the same time when FTX decided to melt down and Elon's doing his thing and the stocks are going, blah, 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 it is, it's too much. I think we should all get a refund on this week. Anyways, we do have a great show for you today. We are going to talk about deals from Ernesta, Telus App, and Harmonix. So we're going to start with a pretty good solid startup focus. Then we're going to talk about meta and other social media layoffs with a small touch of what's going on with Twitter just to keep you up to date. And then we're going to close with what's left of crypto. And yes, we did talk about that earlier this week on a Twitter live, but more things have happened. Many things have happened. So we have to do an update yet again. Whew. But to start, and I'm very excited about this, we're going to talk about rug pulls, but not in the crypto NFT context. Becca, what's going on and why is Peloton involved? Yeah. So this was sort of the deal of the week that makes you go, what is happening right now in venture? Um, so earlier this week, company called Ernesta raised a 25 million Series A round to sort of create a new D2C custom rug company. Um, what's interesting about that, other than the fact that rugs and the startup community, I've never intersected as far as I remember, um, is that it's John Foley's new startup, the former CEO and co-founder of Peloton, which this definitely raised a lot of questions. Who knew John Foley was a rug guy? Why was this what he thought of after Peloton? Wow, he's making another bet on D2C. Like, just a lot of questions came out of that, that just the randomness of it. But this took out of it because like diving deeper in, there's a lot of questions about the actual deal itself and sort of like what this says about what VCs are doing right now. It's a $25 million Series A on a pre-launch company with no product market fit uh, that John Foley, if following timelines correctly, has only been working on full time since September. So definitely raise a lot of questions. Well, it just goes to show how equitable the venture capital market is. There's no bias towards prior founders. There's no bias towards generic white men whatsoever, <laughs> and that anyone can raise money today. Because obviously, if a rando can raise $25 million for a direct-to-consumer rug pre-launch startup, there's infinite capital available, Becca. Is that right? Or am I just annoyed? <laughs> no, and I mean, it feels right. And on the one hand, something I try to point out in the piece, though, is the thought of venture capitalists backing John Foley again in the future, that is not particularly surprising because he obviously Peloton isn't doing what they were doing in 2020 and sort of they've seen sort of a fall of grace in that way. But John Foley didn't commit fraud. There was no lying to <laughs> investors. It's not like an Adam Newman type shock for the fact that VCs are backing him again. But the timing of this when like so many companies can't raise and Everyone mm -hmm. seems to be having issues getting time with investors. All of this just seemed a little too on the nose for what we've been seeing this year. 
Yeah, I, w- I have to say I was pretty surprised, um, but then not. It is disturbing like how quickly people who are repeat founders can just raise more money from investors so early in the stage of a company. It's offensive. Again, as we've repeatedly written about uh, women and people of color struggling to raise capital when they've got far more traction, like way more traction than this company does. It <laughs> It's really just infuriating, to be honest. I mean, no offense to John Foley. I don't really know much about him. This doesn't have to do with him on a like personal sure. level or professional level. It's just he represents what is wrong with venture today. In this particular case, that's just how I feel about it. You know, on, on the point about he didn't do any fraud and so forth, it's true, Becca. But I mean, if he had, we could have added a zero to this particular round, given that we've seen people <laughs> before who have engaged in activities you might consider to be fraudulent raise a lot more money for their pre-launch company. So 25 million is kind of like chump change for this class of founder. And not to mention, I mean, a D2C custom rug company. I mean, who is sitting in their house thinking right now, man, I wish I could custom design a rug for this room. I mean, like, what? So me, I think that. <laughs> I need a new rug in my office. Um, but but you custom made, really? I. What's the price point? Do we actually know, Becca, what the price point is going to be on these D2C rugs? Because I, I, I hate to go against Marianne and then have it wrong. <laughs> no, we don't. And that adds to the whole, maybe if I saw what these rugs look like or the prices, I could see sort of like the need here. But none of that info is out yet. I mean, maybe the investors know that, but we surely don't at this point. Okay, so the rug in my office has survived a puppy, other dogs, winters of me tracking mud into my office. And and I'm not going to lie, a whole bunch of coffee spills. So like, it's time. This rug needs to go. Like, it's been abused. And buying a rug is not the funnest thing because they're large. At the same time, options exist. And so I'm so curious, like, what will this company do that is distinct? And also, mm-hmm. as I've written about, DTC companies are wildly out of favor right now. So it feels, it feels like the Mad Libs startup. Yeah. I mean, last thing I'll say, I feel like this is targeting a very niche segment of the population, the very wealthy, because really, I mean, how many people, first of all, who would even want one? But okay, okay say you did, like how many people can afford to do this? Because I'm going to assume this is not going to be a cheap thing, really. Yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. I doubt he's going to be marketing to the masses, right? So I mean, do we really need this? Like there's so much more in the world that is like more important to be using technology to fix. Like do do rich people really need more rugs and do they have to be custom? I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't get this at all. Yeah, no, that was like one of the big things that stuck out to me. I was like, this seems like a classic example of a solution being created for a non-problem. Right. I have never found buying a rug to be difficult. I've bought quite not quite a few, obviously, <laughs> which again adds to the weirdness of this because you don't buy these things that often. That's true. And you don't own that many of them. So true. And like, I just got back from this trip in India and I spent a couple of times talking to artisans there at different rug places, different um, rug emporiums and the like. And they're saying like, I don't know. It's just like, you can get a custom made rug there. You can get a family made rug there. And I just found them to not be that crazy expensive. And a lot of places like that, they pay to ship it to your house for free. They even made a comment where they could never do it online because the colors would never line up. And then I got back and saw this news literally four days later. And I was just like, whoa, okay. Never thought my vacation was going to inform something about my job. But I was just like, this just doesn't add up to me at all. So I'm trying to make a point about house sizes here. And I was going through coverage of John Foley selling his uh, $55 million Hamptons mansion. And I I can't get the square footage actually nailed down in the seconds that I have, but I'll just say this. Maybe if you have a $55 million house in the Hamptons, 
you need more rugs. And so maybe you have this burning issue in your soul that says, hey, you know what we need to do is make custom rugs easier to get. And I don't want to go to a store. I'm a Hamptons person, so I'm too busy. So I'll make a company and then Lee Fixel will fund it. <laughs> I don't f- know. Uh, let's move on. Marianne, there's stuff going on in the world of savings. And there's a new company out called Telus App that has raised some money. And if I understand it correctly, they are trying to make extra large loans to people to buy a second home, and then they're going to somehow make that into an interest product. So talk us through it. Yeah, it is a bit complex. I'm going to do my best to, to simplify and explain what Telus uh, is doing. First of all, they're actually a six-year-old company. They've been around a few years. They're just kind of just now emerging from stealth. And what they do, it's, it's a model I've not yet heard of. So they have like a savings product for retail consumers, and they say they offer higher yields, 3.85 up to, I think, 4 point something. 4.5, which is pretty good considering that, you know, most savings account interest rates are dismal. And they claim, you know, this is a more safe alternative than crypto or stocks right now, which, you know, obviously crypto has gone to sh- this week. So yeah, anyway, that's one side of their business. So then they use that money that they're getting from the retail consumers to fund what is described as a super jumbo loan. So say you've got a house already, you want to buy a bigger house, but you don't yet want to sell the one you're living in. Well, you're not going to get a traditional loan, okay, because you've already got so much money tied up in your current house. So tell us, after using like their strict underwriting criteria, their words, will loan you that money at a higher interest rate than what you would get for a traditional loan so that you can purchase that house. And then that loan usually ends up getting refinanced. So that owner uh, is not paying those outrageous interest rates long term, which TELUS says minimizes its risk for default because the loans end up getting refinanced anyway. Did that make sense? Or was it just too complex? I understand. I just have a lot of questions. So if they refinance the loans, it won't be generating the sort of yield required to create the income needed to pay the interest on the consumer deposits, right? Right. I mean, it seems risky to me, but I guess they're counting on volume. That's the thing. So when I was reading this, my question is how many people are out there? This is the exact same question we had with the D2C rug company. How many people out there fit this profile and need a super, uh, super jumbo mortgage? Because it seems that every dollar of mortgage, they can create a dollar of deposits and take the higher rate on the mortgage and you just have to pay the deposits which is how credit unions work, right? And it's, mm-hmm, they've worked mm-hmm. that way for a long time. So the model kind of functions. But to have a very exotic mortgage product to create the yield to allow for a higher interest rate consumer savings, I think you're going to have a lot more demand for the savings product than the mortgage for product. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for sure. There's definitely way more people who want to earn more money on their savings, earn more interest on their savings than people who, who need these super jumbo loans. It kind of goes back to our earlier point. That part of their business targets, you know, obviously very already wealthy people. And they only do that in California, but retail consumers all over can can put deposits. So they're saying that most importantly, they want to give people a way to save more money, um, make more money on their savings. That that's what they say. Andreessen Horowitz believed so much in this model. They led a $16 million seed round for the company earlier this year, which I thought was interesting. And other backers that uh, you might not expect were co-founders of YouTube and Lime. I'm perplexed by this. And I keep trying to figure out exactly how it works. Becca, how many of your friends need an extra super 
Jumbo Mortgage, just out of curiosity. The same amount of friends who need that custom rug startup, which is zero. And then how many of your friends would like to earn 20x more interest from 0.2% to 4% on their money? I mean, probably everyone. Yeah, 100%. So, oh yeah, okay. All right. So do, are they going to cap how much money I can I can save? And if so, then it's just kind of like a constrained money market account, which feels more like a bond. I know. They, they say they've lent out more than $80 million um, so far. And average loan size is about $2 million. So, I mean, we'll see how this goes. They've done 40 deals? Uh, <laughs> this whole thing is predicated on 40 deals? They say they've had some as low as like hundreds of thousands and some like four to five million. That's just an average. It's not like every loan. A couple hundred K is not super... Ju- I don't understand this. All right. Well, you know what? I didn't understand FTX and that went great. So, <laughs> I'm sure. We'll see what happens. I was just drawn to the story because I've never heard of this model. It was just very unique, very different. Um, I would like to know where this company is a year from now. I mean, digital mortgage companies aren't doing well. They claim that their revenue grew 55% um, third quarter over second. I'd like to see where they are a year from now. Yeah. I think one of the big questions that stuck out to me from reading your story on this is that it's mobile first, which is something, yes, fintech as a whole realm Mobile first makes a lot of sense in a lot of cases, but for like a mortgage focused start, I thought that was just mm. so odd. Oh, is it just mobile first for the accounts? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. It's mobile first for the retail consumers. The way they market the the loans is they partner with brokers, mortgage brokers. So the mobile first is more about trying to get customers for the savings product through like channels like Instagram, TikTok, Google, that sort of thing. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Maybe I need to clarify that in the piece because if uh, if you thought that, then others might too. Okay, well, that's because we think that way because Rocket Mortgage has ads on sports games and they're like they're holding <laughs> up a phone. They're like, push a button, get a mortgage. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Like, why would you do that? You should think about this a long time first because you shouldn't impulse buy a, a house like you would a t-shirt. I mean, maybe for John Foley, but like, you know, for the rest of us mere mortals, we should probably think about syncing up that much of our assets in there. Another thing that I'm curious about is like this model during a epic downturn in the housing market seems speciously timed. Yeah. I mean, again, I thought so too, especially when we've been writing about so many layoffs in this space and and just companies that aren't doing well. So I was really intrigued that they've managed to grow their revenue by 55% the last quarter. So again, I think maybe because they're targeting a very niche uh, segment of the population, I'm not 100% sure. But it was unique enough to catch my attention. Absolutely. And our skepticism should not be an indication that it won't work. It just we have a lot of questions. And if they do find a way, though, to take a certain debt product and give the yield back to regular folks as interest, cool. I mean, huzzah. If it works, then yes. Right. Also, just having something new that caught your eye in fintech, I feel like I've been pitched so many repeat companies trying to do the exact same thing that it is refreshing to see someone be like, actually, we're taking a new take on something and doing a new model. That is nice to see. Yes. Exactly. The proverbial breath of fresh air. Um, Speaking of not new ideas, uh, Harmonic. Okay, (laughs) I'm I'm being kind of unfair. Harmonic is a company just raised a $23 million Series A led by Sozo Ventures, which I'm actually not familiar with. uh, But there's participation from Kraft, who I am familiar with. And Harmonic is, is very interesting. So what they're doing is they're going out around the internet, essentially, and collecting all the data they can about private companies, and then essentially aggregating that into one place that you can access with a, I think we wrote a quote, text-based startup search query tool. So it's kind of like Google for startups, but with a very tailored data set. And not to go back and talk about my personal work history, but I used to work for a company called Mattermark. I was building a news team there. 
uh, before they kind of went under. And they were doing something kind of similar, aggregating information on private companies and providing that to investors and other folks to make decisions. Crunchbase collects data in a similar fashion and has a Crunchbase score. I, I just, this strikes me as cool, but Becca, the thing that I don't think that I see here is proprietary data, because I feel like they're going to go out there and collect all the stuff that you and I already look for by hand. But to me, without something that's you truly unique and special, it's kind of another aggregator with some ML thrown on top. Yeah, no. And I think what stood out to me from reading the piece too, is the way that the founders talked about it as they were like, well, we don't do it like Crunchbase and PitchBook. We find this other public data. And I'm just curious why they have so much conviction that they're sort of finding this in a different way. Because I know just from someone who, you know, turns to both PitchBook, CB Insights, Crunchbase pretty much equally, they all have different stuff. But I don't think one's better at finding X than the other. And I'm would have a hard time believing that this company in particular has like cracked the code on like how to find the most accurate especially accurate public data when there are other companies, you know, searching for the exact same types of numbers. Yeah, I, I was intrigued by a couple of things about the company. Yes, I agree with your points. I guess part of what they're trying to sell is rather than you having to take the time to do all this research, they're doing it for you. But when you go to the homepage, and it looks like how the way that they're, um, the queries are divided up, it's not just by funding, which, you know, is largely what, what Crunchbase does. But they track headcount growth and social media, which I'm not 100% sure how that's valuable to people. I mean, maybe, I don't know. So investors have taken a lot of alternative signals and used those over time. I mean, the early examples of this were like people that first used satellites to track cars in parking lots to guess how certain companies were going to perform for like holiday sales, right? And so grabbing social media data is a kind of a reasonable thing to throw into the mix, but it's been done. And SEC yeah. filings have been collected and incorporation documents, PitchBook, it's those. And what other data exhaust are they going to be able to kind of like collect? And then why does it really help? Because one thing that investors love to do is meet founders. They like to dig into a company's unique situation. So at best, does this just let people like find companies they might want to talk to? And if so, how helpful is that? Yeah, I mean... I do think it is interesting how they're actually tracking percentage change in uh, followers, for example, that a company might have, which might signal like interest, but that could be positive interest, it could be negative interest, right? Like, I mean, it depends on the company. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the apparently a lot of organizations, including Brex, Ramp, Excel, Index Ventures, Carta, uh, use the product. So I, I mean, I guess there's something that, that these organizations and companies find valuable. Oh, I figured it out. Okay. What is Crunchbase becoming? Slowly. Marianne, you and I both used to work there. They're becoming a sales tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Harmonic is too, right? I mean, that's part of what they're trying to do. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about it more as inputs versus outputs when I was framing my thinking about this. But now that I think about it, if you're a salesperson and you think you have a... Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can see this. Yeah. If you look at it from that, that perspective, then I think this becomes a little bit more... You, you get it a little bit more, right? Yeah. At the same time, though, we are seeing, you know, people constrain S&M spend, sales and marketing spend. So I, I wonder how this company is going to perform while uh, belts are tightening. I mean, like Crunchbase just raised a $50 million series D, C? What was it? D? C or D, uh, yeah. D, I think, yeah. <laughs> Given how long I worked there and the fact that I'm still a Crunchbase shareholder, I should know that. I don't. They raised a bunch of money, so there must be juice in the sales model. And so maybe Harmonic can pull this off. Okay, I'm actually kind of okay with this now that I've reframed it in my mind. Um, I think I was yeah. too stuck in my Mattermark <laughs> perspective. Yeah, and, and I agree. I do think 
like we talked about, like, yeah, we could find all this stuff ourselves, but like having it all in one place, them doing the work, I can see where that would be convenient for people. So mm-hmm. it is interesting. I think, again, just like with TELUS, I'm curious to see where this company is going to be a year from now. And maybe like right now, it's an example of a company where that might do very well in a downturn because, you know, everyone's trying to make more money <laughs> because it's not as easy to raise capital as it was like a year ago. So maybe this is the kind of product that will actually do well yeah. during a downturn. All right, let's put startups aside and talk about some big companies. And uh, instead of having good news about funding rounds and lots of exciting things, the ax has uh, swung. Yeah, yeah. This week, Meta confirmed uh, that it was cutting 13% of its workforce, which amounted to about 11,000 people being laid off, which is a huge amount, really. They employed about 87,000 people around the world. We all knew this was probably coming. I don't think we realized it would be quite so many people. And what's interesting is that they actually were, were hiring just as recently as what the third quarter, right? I mean, I think second quarter, they had 83,553 employees, third, 87,314, which is almost a 4,000 person gain. And then now they're laying off 11,000. I mean, like, what were they thinking? Well, it's only, it's only three quarters of hiring, Marianne. I mean, <laughs> they're only really going back to where they were by that rate of change, Q1. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And the absolute number, the raw figure is huge. But given the scale of the company, it actually feels more like a haircut than a decapitation. But Becca, thoughts? I just think it's just after everything that's happened with the small Layoffs we've seen just like every company seems to be cutting staff in some way or another. So I think what really does stand out here is the number, especially because I know from chatting with some Meta employees last weekend, some of the stuff with Twitter, they were all like, yes, like Meta is so pumped that we are not the main character this week. Mm. Like our earnings were not great. And like it is sliding under the radar. And then this came out and it's like, okay, womp womp, not anymore. I mean, I think it's sobering, to be honest. I mean, really, like, you know, this is the first major layoff, or I think first layoff ever, right, for this company. So I feel like it's, it's, it is just very sobering for big tech, for startups alike. It's like if Meta is laying off this many people, like, what does that say about just the overall market right now? Mm -hmm. This is just a little personal uh, thing. I I just want to share, I've already shared it with you guys. But you know, my daughter's ex kindergarten teacher, who was incredible, um, left the profession a few years ago. She just, it was just too much for her. She was underpaid, too much stress. She um, most recently had a job at Meta doing very, very well, was very excited about it. And sadly, she was among those laid off. So I just, you know, again, like we write about these layoffs all the time. We, we don't enjoy reading and writing about them, but it really hits differently when we know people impacted. And so I'm really bummed for, for people like her and others who were on work visas, things like that. Another quick point, though, um, I've seen on social media that people are applauding the way that Mark Zuckerberg approach this. I'd like to talk about that a little bit and see what you all think. Oh, Marianne, please. I'm going to proverbially sit down, put my feet up and shut up. Go for it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I actually don't have a, a solid like take on it. I mean, a lot of people are like praising it. I mean, he was very contrite taking accountability, which is the new trend. It feels like among CEOs and founders when they have to lay off is like, you know, you have to take accountability and say you're sorry. And he did all that. I think the severance package was very generous, 16 weeks of severance plus two weeks extra for each year of service. I don't know, like for the people who got laid off, I don't know how how much all that really meant to them. I mean, maybe from the outside, it looks like really great and sincere. I'm not sure. But um, I do appreciate the taking accountability, though, either way. I think what stood out to me from the package specifically is 
just how long employees will have health care. Because I know that's a thread that's been devastating to watch this whole layoff period across other companies of people posting on LinkedIn and Twitter as well about the loss of health insurance, whether they're either currently dealing with a health crisis or say it's someone who a family who's expecting or sort of have kids who have sort of needs like this. Like that's, I think, what stood out to me is because that I feel, especially if you're coming out of a company like Meta, not everyone makes the same amount of money at Meta, obviously, but it is definitely a higher tier paying type of roles generally. For sure. But health insurance is where you can really kind of get kicked when you're down no matter what. Yeah. So having something like that, I feel like that is what really stood out to me as being like a smart way to sort of give employees who have been laid off that breathing room to find that next thing. Six months is definitely generous. Six months is good, but I, I think that should be the legally required minimum. Agreed. Like if we're going to have employer run health insurance in this country, as we mostly do, then I think there should be some standards attached to it because I think American corporations get away with just shirking their responsibilities. The human aspect here, though, is why I felt the reaction to Twitter's layoffs was so gross, because so many people, Elon fans mostly, it seemed, were cheering the idea of Twitter being gutted. And, you know, you can argue that Twitter had some fat to cut on its operations. Sure. I mean, name a company that after 2021 that didn't have a little bit. But fundamentally, these are just folks, right? They're not these aren't the pe- these aren't people who are usually independently wealthy. They're just employees who have kids, or or as in one woman's case, was eight months pregnant when she was fired capriciously. And people just are just jerks. Makes me kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. I think the ability for people who have been laid off to sort of get the human connection back with Meta Two is important. Like they're offering, you can either join. I think there are like group calls you can join to ask questions, or you can set up stuff to talk to people more directly. Because I know I we've talked about this on the podcast before, and it's come up in these stories where it's like, how do you lay someone off at a tiny company? How do you lay someone off at a big company? Sort of what point does it become not right to call everyone individually? When does it become overwhelming? There's no good playbook for stuff like this. So the fact that it's that many people, and it seems like there's at least, I mean, who knows how they'll actually go. We can't make a judgment of that yet. But it seems like they're pretty careful in setting up avenues where if people want to talk to someone, a real person in sort of live, that they can. And I feel for layoffs that large, that's unexpected, but definitely a better way to go about it if people really do need that sort of time to ask questions. Yeah. The way this has been handled is I think it made me feel more warm fuzzies for Mark Zuckerberg than anything else in the last couple, several years. Ever. I, I would agree with that too. I think, I think he has done a pretty good job um, overall in addressing this. Still doesn't take away from the fact though that he's, he's sunk so much money into this metaverse, which probably didn't help in terms of, sorry, leading to this. Do you know what I would do, Marianne, if I was in charge of a company worth a trillion dollars and I had complete voting control over it? I would do some wild shit. Like the metaverse thing is so not crazy. I would I would invent like flying dragons that are made of titanium because I had a trillion dollars to f- around with. Like the metaverse thing is relatively middle of the road. It may not work. We all may giggle at Reality Labs, right? Yeah, that losing all this money, but like it's still pretty mainstream tech. They've been on it for years. I don't know. Trying to find a second act is hard. Just look at Alphabet. But Twitter layoffs as well. Marianne, there's been a lot of conversations about not just people who are fired, but also who are leaving. So who's left recently that we care about? Yeah, Zach just wrote about uh, today or yesterday when you hear this, Twitter's chief information security officer resigned. And that's huge. And we're hearing that other top 
execs in that realm are also leaving, although not confirmed. This is pretty dis- disturbing overall for what's going on at Twitter. I mean, it's been a show all week, but this is like taking things to another level when you start to see people who are involved in compliance because it's it's supposedly, it's rumored, I think, chief privacy officer, chief compliance officer, in addition to the chief information security officer. If that's yeah. true that they've all left, I mean, that's very worrisome and the FTC should be paying a lot of attention. Yeah, because there are some consent degrees right here. The Twitter has agreed to do certain things with new products to prevent to protect user security or data. I'm butchering that, but it's close enough. And I, I wonder if those are being met because if not, the, Becca, the fines could be in the billions. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this from the US lens too. I mean, I can only imagine European privacy and security <laughs> regulators right now seeing that news being like, oh boy. Um, they are so much more serious. I mean, we all know that. They're so much more serious about this stuff than we are. So I can, I really can only imagine where this will go from here. Europe as like the sobered up, like mid thirties version of the punk rock American economy is actually now how I'm going to think about everything because they are just the, they're like the United States government, but like in a suit with 10 years of maturity under its belt. That's how the EU regulatory structure feels. Oh God, they're going to eat him alive, aren't they? Oh yeah. Oh boy. We were going to go through a layoff list of, uh, of major layoffs, and I decided to prepare this for the show because I thought it'd be useful. The problem is it's actually not, because I decided to constrain the layoffs that I was going to bring up to just things since August, so kind of like that last couple of months time frame, and just to layoffs over 250 people. And it was a very long list. It's not like 10 names, it's like a lot of names. And so it's kind of a moot thing to bring up, but uh, was anyone else surprised at just the number of companies that have cut stuff in the last couple of months? Because even though I've been covering it, I was shocked. Not really, honestly. I mean, I think I think it's pretty widespread. Like we talked about, I mean, the the post-pandemic world was just, you know, I think a lot of people overestimated how well that they their business would do. So I, I feel like it was pretty widespread. I wasn't shocked, which is kind of sad, I guess. Yeah, and I think... What shocked me more about it is realizing just how many employees some of those companies had. That's something that's always surprised me. Just I feel like I've always worked at, well, obviously owned by Yahoo, not a tiny company, but working in media, I feel like I've always worked at generally decently small companies. So even before layoffs started happening, just something about covering startups has always surprised me how big some companies are for what they do or sort of where they're at in the progression. So the layoffs themselves were surprising, but then I'm always reminded, you look at the percentage and you're like, whoa, wait, that was, that was 10% of the company. Like I'm surprised there were that many people working on this or that many people at this stage, which I mean, obviously just speaks to what venture, I mean, not, this isn't exclusive to venture, but for venture back companies speaks to kind of the craziness of that space for the last four years. But that tie is kind of what's been surprising me the most. Yeah. Well, speaking of layoffs, FTX has laid off its market cap, its market reputation, um, its relationship with regulators, its US political clout, and um, I think all goodwill in the crypto community uh, in the last couple of days. Where should we pick up this thread is my question, because there's been so much going on. Should we give an overview, guys, or should we just pick up on the last couple of bits of news? I'm torn. Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, obviously, it kind of all started with Binance saying it was going to buy FTX, right? Was it non-US assets? Yeah. And then they backed out, and then all sorts of shit has come out since. Well, okay, (laughs) I'm going to extend that back a little bit further. It turns out that the rise of FTX and its sister company, Alameda, which was its kind of trading sister company, was a little bit more um, full of chicanery than we might have thought. And there was apparently some lending back and forth and some counterparty risk, as they say. And uh, that was not really, I think, made clear to us on the reporting side or the public side. 
And then when Binance kind of helped to engender a run on the bank, if you will, uh, I think that's a legally safe way of saying that, FTX became apparently much more fragile than we thought that it was. And then the most recent thing is the Binance deal has fallen apart. There is squawking from American regulatory bodies. And it appears that FTX could go to zero, Becca. And Sequoia actually talked about that. We were talking about this a little bit all on Slack about Sequoia's memo that went out yesterday. One, I can't think of a time in my experience covering this space that I've ever seen that an LP memo like that purposely made public by the firm in question. Mm -hmm. And them writing down the company to zero was, I mean, probably accurate, but it's just stark to see, especially at this point in the process, because I mean, hard to believe anything that Sam Bakeman Fried is saying right now, but he is saying like the company may be in talks, like some stuff may be able to come back, like they may be able to sort of save or gain some of that liquidity that they're missing, obviously, especially with Binance walking away. But Sequoia to just already be like, nope, we're writing it down to zero. It's a loss. Like, even with what happens from here, like, that's very telling about yeah. sort of how venture will approach this, especially going forward. Right. I mean, just earlier this year, FTX was valued at what, $32 billion. It has raised uh, about $2 billion to date. Sequoia being so public about this is it's obviously making a point that it wants to distance itself from FTX. Um, and Connie, who wrote the, the piece about it, her assumption is that most investors are going to. So if FTX is looking for its backers to bail it out, probably not going to happen here. Well, no, VCs won't throw m- more, more good money, money after bad. <laughs> to a sinking ship. Oh, yeah. I mean, like if you, th- if you add weight to a sinking ship, it doesn't uh, gain brilliancy. The question is just what will individual FTX users get back, if anything? Hopefully they get back 100%, but we'll see. Jackie, our uh, senior crypto reporter on TC Plus, noted that the volume on FTX, it's cratered so much that even if it did somehow survive, I don't think it's ever going to survive, right? I mean, like who's going right. to trust them now? So the question really is just how much, how much damage is there once the smoke clears from the impact? No, and you make such a good point there too about the users, because I feel like when we had sort of the issues with Robinhood and some of like the Wall Street bets stuff from last year, users and users losing money and sort of consumers losing money was a much bigger part of the conversation than it has been thus far, at least from what I've seen from FTX. It seems like a lot more asset recovery as far as the business goes and sort of investors and sort of like that type of player. Maybe I've missed it. But that is something I thought last night as I was going through things um, toward the end of the day was that I felt like I had seen significantly less coverage on sort of the actual human aspect of this in the people who just wanted to try investing their money. Of course, obviously, you take risks doing that. No one doesn't know that. But you also don't expect a $32 billion company to evaporate overnight either. Right. So I just feel like that hasn't been as big of the conversation with FTX thus far. And I'm not sure why, but um, definitely something that I noticed. So you're saying, you don't, you know, when you're taking risk investing in crypto, you're taking risk because you think, okay, the, the prices might be volatile. You're not you're not taking risks and thinking that the company is going to crash and burn a few months later. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. And then, and I think Jackie tweeted recently, there was about $5 billion of withdrawals on Sunday alone, FTX, which is insane. Yeah. But you know what? Why would they be operating on a fractional reserve basis? Maybe, maybe you shouldn't make your own token and then print it and then give it to your sister company to borrow against and get yourself levered up to the freaking neck. And then so that way you can get exploded over the weekend. Like humans don't learn much over time. 
And excessive cleverness in the financial world seems to be something that we have to relearn every five years. But like, how did no one sit him down, SPF, and be like, this is dumb. You're going to get caught and it's going to blow up. It's, it's illegal, right? I mean, it's illegal, uh, no? Where are they based? What are the rules? I don't know, but it's really messed up, though, if it's, if it's not. Like, if it's true that you can get away with doing that kind of thing, I mean, that's just, that's just really messed up. Yeah. Uh, by the time the show comes out Friday morning, I presume something else massive will have happened in the FTX world. But as we're sitting here, it seems to be just a question of what happens to consumers and then how fast do you wind down the business? There was a, a Twitter thread about it today. And um, yeah, SBF has gone from from nobody to savior to pariah faster than I can really remember anyone else doing it. The word Icarus comes to mind. The other thing too is because this is all focused on the non-US part of FTX. I just am like, what happens to FTX US? Like, yeah. would anyone really be like, wow, that's a place to put my money now? It's like, what? what is the actual future for that side of it, even if it isn't in this financial kind of bind right now, I can't imagine I can, it's just going to like go on swimmingly from here. I can summarize my my view about what will happen to FTX.US by saying this, Coinbase shares uh, Thursday afternoon as we record this are up 11% on the day. That's your answer right there. Yeah. That's your answer right there. I mean, so it's going to be great for Coinbase. Well, no, I mean, it's bad for the overall market, but it may temporarily limit domestic competition for Coinbase, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Even though even though SBF is claiming that FTX US is 100% liquid, like we said, I mean, he's going to really have faith with having money yeah. on this exchange. Not hard to maintain liquidity when no one's arriving at the well with a cup. All right. Um, but we have to stop. Um, Becca, as always, having you on the show is an absolute treat. I love doing this. And uh, while I'm on parental leave, you're going to be around quite a bit. So we're looking forward to that. Marianne, as always, thank you for being here and all of your expertise. Teresa and Kel and everyone else, thank you. And we'll be back on Monday morning. See you then. Bye. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.